A deal between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada goes down to the wire with agreement reached at the 11th hour, and yet it's NAFTA no more. The story today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. What used to be called the North American Free Trade Agreement has a new name and some new rules. We'll walk through the changes in what's now being called the USMCA. Catch the Texas gubernatorial debate Friday night? Don't worry, we've got you covered. Also, two years after a new law and protests over concealed carry of firearms on Texas college campuses, what's happened and what hasn't? And filming a revolution in what they used to call Cement City. All that and more today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this first day of October 2018. I'm David Brown. Thanks for joining us and a happy start to your work week, one and all. Albeit a rainy start for the eastern two-thirds of the Lone Star State. Democrats across the nation with their eyes on Texas this weekend watching Willie rally fans in Austin Saturday in support of Congressman Beto O'Rourke, the challenger in that hotly contested U.S. Senate race against incumbent Ted Cruz. At a benefit concert with an audience estimated at 55,000, DFW's Leon Bridges as the opener, the red-headed stranger himself debuted a new song on stage. It's titled, Vote em Out. The Trump presidency has activated Democrats nationwide, but whether it'll be enough to bring about the election of the first Democrat to statewide office since the early 1990s won't be known till November. On another front, what the New York Times is calling a win for the Trump administration late last night, announcing it's NAFTA no more. But that doesn't mean there's no North American free trade deal. Quite the opposite, in fact. As the clock approached midnight, word began to spread that Canada was ready to sign on the dotted line joining Texas's largest trading partner, Mexico, and the U.S., and the pact will have a new name, the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or the USMCA. But that part's mostly packaging, right? It's the substance of this new deal that matters, and to talk about what's in it for all of us, Raymond Robertson. He is a professor and holder of the Helen and Roy Rue Chair in Economics and Government at the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service, Texas A&M. Professor Robertson, welcome. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let me ask you about the key aspects of this deal. Uh, for starters, cars, right? Yes, cars were a major sticking point in the renegotiations. The administration wanted to increase the amount of domestic content required to qualify for the North American free trade tariff preferences. And so what does it look like starting in 2020, if you want to avoid tariffs altogether, 75% of its components have to be manufactured in either Canada, Mexico, or the U.S. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what we've been hearing. And although the text hasn't been widely released yet, but that is what people are saying. And what that's designed to do is increase the demand for production in Mexico, the United States, and Canada. Does it have a downside? I mean, why has it taken so long to get there? This seems like something that would be an obvious boon for all three countries. It really does. The problem has been that a lot of automobile production is made with parts from around the world. And this means that we won't be able to import parts from other countries uh, to lower the prices of these cars. Oh, I see. Uh, one sticking point had been Canada's very complex and restrictive uh, dairy uh, set up. Uh, they've tried to protect their dairy farmers in Canada for some time. Uh, there are changes in this new agreement. 
The new agreement seems to open up Canada's dairy markets to foreign trade, and I think this will be really good news for American farmers, especially the dairy farmers in states like Wisconsin and Minnesota and even parts of Texas. Uh, so uh, let's see. There is another element of this, and uh, this is something that I suppose Canada might say was a win for them. They wanted to maintain uh, uh, this, I believe it's called Chapter 19, which has to do with negotiating disagreements. Am, am I correct? Yes, that's exactly right. That was the one point that Canada was very adamant about maintaining because they've used those provisions in the previous version of NAFTA several times in negotiating with the United States. President Trump is obviously touting this as a win, and it does seem to have come down to the wire, the wire being a deadline that President Trump himself declared for uh, renegotiating NAFTA. What do you make of that? Well, there's been lots of deadlines throughout this negotiating process, and I'm sure you're aware that we've missed lots of them. So to finally make a deadline is actually pretty good news. What does this mean in terms of uh, uh, the larger, uh, I suppose you could say, uh, scheme for uh, the U.S., Canada, and Mexico going forward here? They're no longer calling it NAFTA, uh, for, for starters. Yeah, they're changing the name, and it's going to be very interesting going forward to see exactly how much has changed. Some of the provisions are very similar to those that we would have had had we stayed in the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiations. And so it's not clear that the new NAFTA will be that much different from the old one. Uh, what happens next? I mean, if uh, I presume that if this is uh, a new agreement between these three countries, Congress is going to have to weigh in at some point or no? Yeah, that's exactly right. So the agreement is supposed to be signed within the next 60 days by all of the administrative branches, the executive branches of the three countries. But then the United States Congress has to ratify it. And congressional leaders have said that they're not planning on ratifying or considering it until next year. Something that a lot of folks have, um, have been uh, concerned about is uh, steel tariffs. Is there any mention of what might happen now or any sense of what might happen now with those steel tariffs? Well, Canada in particular was hoping that now that we have an agreement, this will mean that we'll be able to, the United States would reduce those tariffs towards Canada and Mexico. But uh, that's still up in the air. President Trump is obviously claiming this is a major victory. How do you see it in terms uh, uh, of a win for Mexico and Canada? For this to be an agreement that's going to have any durability, of course, they've got to see this as uh, something good for themselves, too. Well, that's exactly right. I think Mexico actually was able to increase the amount of products and, and products that they were producing, which made them more comfortable with increasing that domestic content requirement we talked about. Mm -hmm. And I also think Canada realizes that we're their number one trading partner. And so having this agreement was absolutely critical, I think, for the Canadian economy. Raymond Robertson is professor and chair in economics and government in the Department of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service, Texas A&M University. Professor Robertson, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. We sure do appreciate it. Anytime. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, according to the calendar, it's been a little over two years since Texas's campus concealed carry law went into effect, and by the looks of things now, it's likely to stay. In August, a federal appeals court threw out a lawsuit by three professors from the University of Texas at Austin who had argued that the law stifles free speech. But has the law had any measurable effect on the state's college campuses? Well, Houston Public Media's Florian Martin wanted to find out. 
First, I was wondering if there's any way of knowing how many students are bringing guns to campus. So I checked right here at home with the University of Houston Police Department. There'd be no way for us to know that because we don't ask the question. Brett Collier is the acting captain for UHPD's patrol division. They do have one indicator. How many people leave their firearms with the campus police because they're planning to be in what's called an exclusion zone. Universities get to designate certain zones on campus where guns are not allowed. At UH, that includes science labs, dorms, the daycare facility, and sporting facilities, among others. So this is our exchange room here. Collier shows me where students can surrender their guns. Uh, we'll bring out a uh, safe. It's a you know small safe, uh, thumbprint. So they get to put their thumbprint in, put the device in the box, and then we'll take it to the back and store it. There have been 31 requests to store a firearm at UHPD. But that still doesn't tell us how many students overall are armed. So I called up a student who advocates for the right to take guns onto college campuses. Quinn Cox is with Students for Concealed Carry and studies accounting at the University of Texas at Austin. He wouldn't say whether or not he is carrying. That's the beauty of concealed carry, um, is that you know no matter where you go, it's, it's concealed. Uh, no one's, no one's going to know. But his group came up with an estimate for how many Texas students carry on campus. The group used data from concealed carry licenses, for which you have to be 21 or older to qualify. From basically 21 to 23, the uh, licensure rates and the carry rates there, you know, as compared to you know, how often other people carry. And we've determined that it's a little bit above 1% of the student population that is licensed to carry. Now, whether they carry or not, we have no way of knowing that. No way of knowing because there is so little research. There was a 2011 study by four researchers at Sam Houston State University. It estimated that at least 18% of classrooms would have at least one armed student. Michael Kavanaugh is one of the researchers. He now teaches criminal justice, CJ for short, at the University of Houston downtown. He says the results vary significantly by building. One of the interesting findings was that the CJ building at Sam Houston had the highest number of people that would carry, right? It just made logical sense. The art building had the lowest number of people that would carry. Kavanaugh suspects the overall numbers to be higher now that the law is actually in effect. Either way, has there been any kind of effect on safety, negative or positive? Kavanaugh says there have been very few incidents statewide. Right when the law was implemented, they had a couple of incidents. I think there was one at Tarlington State of a gun going off. And then for the last two years, I mean, there's it's really been pretty silent. There have been a few more minor incidents. In the past year, a gun went off accidentally in a dorm room at Texas A&M, and at UT Austin, pistols were found in women's restrooms. But the lack of violent incidents doesn't tell the whole story, says Hannah Shearer, an attorney with the Giffords Law Center to prevent gun violence. I think it's the impact of students not applying and professors not taking positions at Texas universities because they don't want to be in a situation where they have to allow guns in the classroom. Shearer says guns on campus might only increase the risk of suicides. And she worries what confusion could result if there were an active shooter on campus. But two years after it took effect, there is little hard data to assess the impact of Texas's campus carry law. In Houston, I'm Florian Martin for the Texas Standard. Wells Dunbar, hot off of the Texas Tribune Festival, which we'll have more about a little later in the broadcast. He's monitoring social media on this Monday, though. 
Hi, David. Yeah, new details about the tent shelters for child immigrants in Tornillo shared widely on social media this weekend. The New York Times took another look at the detention center in West Texas, yeah. which largely houses minors that arrived at the border alone. That number now is estimated at about 1,600 young detainees, but it's other details that got the fo- that got people talking. Their transport there announced to them only a few hours beforehand and happening undercover in the middle of the night. The Times also notes that unlike permanent shelters, which are licensed and monitored by child welfare authorities, the tent city at Tornillo isn't and isn't required to offer educational services, too. Mm-hmm, Lots mm-hmm. of folks talking about this one. Like I said, on our Facebook page, Neil Moyer calls the arrangement immoral and intolerable. And from Dallas, Michelle Kinder, she tweets, These days it's hard to know where to place your outrage. Don't let this one fall off your list. She also adds, vote, vote, vote. And yeah, as you just said, David, speaking of voting, lots of political talk over the weekend, the Texas Tribune Festival, that huge Beto O'Rourke rally, and oh yeah, that gubernatorial debate. Oh yeah. I know we're going to be talking about that later. Indeed we will be. And and Bugs, Bugs, uh, you know, the rain has really brought him out in full force. That's coming up next as the Standard continues. Well, it's back in 35. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. It is great to have you with us. Across the eastern half of waterlogged Texas, watch your step. All that rain's brought out the fire ants in full force. Meanwhile, a much more pleasant entomological invasion in south Texas, butterflies. Some of this may be weather-related, too. Texas Public Radio's Brian Kirkpatrick has noticed a lot of them in San Antonio, and he tells us the critters likely splattered on your grill and windshield are called snout-nosed butterflies. Question is, why so many in Where are they off to? None of us feel good about killing hundreds of innocent butterflies as we head down the highway, but we can't help it. There's so many. Molly Keck, an entomologist with the Bear County Office of Texas AgriLife Extension Service, blames their invasion of the city on record rainfall and healthy growth of hackberry bushes. Their favorite food source and their main food source is hackberry. And so when we have these pretty intense rains, that hackberry starts to bud out and that really fresh growth is food for the babies. And if there's enough food for the babies, more of the babies live and then they all become adults. So that's where they're coming from. Rains lead to bushes, bushes lead to buds, buds lead to babies and babies lead to adults. Lots and lots of adults. Keck says even though we're killing them left and right with our vehicles, they intend us no harm. They're not going to hurt your plants or anything like that. And they, as adults, they are pollinators. Um, so just kind of enjoy them. After these guys go away, we'll probably start seeing some monarchs come through. So where are they going? Nowhere. They're kind of just flying around. We call it a migration, but it's not a true migration. They don't. There's no direction that they're headed or end point. They're just flying, looking for a place to mate or a place to lay their eggs again. Isn't it nice to know we are not the only ones who lack a sense of direction sometimes? In San Antonio, I'm Brian Kirkpatrick for the Texas Standard. 
Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Last year, there were about 4,400 evictions in Travis County. As judges will tell you, the majority of these cases are because a family can no longer afford to pay rent. Our home station, KUT, has been looking into the issue of evictions. And if you were with us last week, you might have heard reporter Audrey McGlinchey tell us about how common they've become. Now she's following what's happening to a family after losing their home in Austin. It's just before 7 in the morning. Leah, is that a new backpack? Uh, it's blue. Wow, do you like it? Yeah. What do you like about it? It got surprises in it. What kind of surprises? And shirt. 4-year-old Leah Barnett gets ready for her first day of preschool in Colleen, an hour north of Austin. Just like her backpack, this whole day is kind of a surprise to Leah and her family. You see, in July, Leah, her mom, dad, and two brothers were evicted from their home in North Austin. They moved to Colleen to live with family. Now Leah and her brothers are starting school here. What is that? What is that clothes? And folders? I got two folders, but my my brother don't. You have two ones? Do you have any notebooks? Is today a good day or a bad day? Right now, today is a good day. Brittany Phillips is Leah's mom. About three years ago, she was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, a chronic pain disorder. My muscles would go real limb, and my husband would have to pick me up and take me to the bathroom and, you know, help me change my clothes and do my hair and things like that. And is there treatment for it? Is there, like, medicine you take? Yes. Does it help? No, it doesn't help. Because of the pain, Brittany quit her job as a cashier at an Austin seafood store. Her husband got a job as a technician at a car dealership. The family was doing okay, but Brittany's husband has three other kids that he pays child support for. So when you took that out of his paycheck, he brought home about $800 a month. The family got $400 in food stamps. They split a two-bedroom apartment with Brittany's in-laws, paying about $450 a month. Mom, dad, and three kids crammed into one bedroom, the kids on a blow-up mattress. I liked living there. Yes, it was quiet. Um, everybody stayed to themselves. But then Brittany's in-laws decided to move to Colleen, leaving Brittany and her husband responsible for the full rent. Brittany went back to work, this time as a home health aide, making not much more than minimum wage. As June came to an end, it looked like they weren't going to make it. I don't know, it's just like scary because I have three kids and we don't want them sleeping in a car or... Brittany called churches. She pulled together about half the rent in donations, but they still didn't have the nearly $1,000 they needed. The month came and went and they got a notice to leave. When they put the eviction on the door, I was hoping to find another place, but we just couldn't afford it. 
In July, they piled everything they could into a truck, a toy kitchen set, the blow-up mattress that the kids slept on, and trashed the rest. They drove out to Colleen and moved back in with Brittany's in-laws. Here, there's a lawn, and things are cheaper. But Brittany and her husband are unable to work at the jobs they had in Austin. They just can't afford the gas money needed to make a two-hour round trip every day. And we do our best, you know, with what we have, and it's still not enough. As we talked, the kids played outside, messing with a hose and an old basketball net in the backyard. Their puppy, Skippy, was running around. The kids flocked to my microphone. What's your favorite color? Uh, hi. What's your favorite hi color? is not a color. Silly goose. Color. What's your color? Pink. Pink. That's a great color. What's yours? Red. Red. What about you? Purple. Purple. I love it. <laughs> It's an adventure for them, and um, I don't even think they know what's going on right now, but. In late August, Brittany and her family catch a break. After six years, they've made it to the top of the wait list for public housing in Austin. The program requires tenants to pay only 30% of their income towards rent. At a mandatory orientation, they watch a PowerPoint on how to be a good tenant. When it's over, we walk outside to chat. It'll still be one to two months before a place opens up. But Brittany and her husband are already worried about saving enough for a deposit and first month's rent. It takes extra planning to pay for anything, even getting to this orientation. Was there any concern about the, because I know you guys have been uh, concerned about the gas you know, driving to and from Austin, and obviously you had gas to get here today. Was that a concern at all? Um, kind of, sort of. Kind I, of I sort just, of. Um, like, I, I had a friend that I did some work for yesterday, so that's how we got the, the gas money to make it here today. Brittany and her husband saved up 20 bucks to drive to Austin to do some work on a friend's car. That extra cash that Brittany's husband earned from the job got them to and from Austin for their orientation. Since I last spoke with the family, Brittany got a job as a cashier at a McDonald's in Colleen, so the family can start saving for rent when they get the call about a unit in public housing. And the kids? Brittany says they're loving their new school. For the Texas Standard, I'm Audrey Malinchi. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. Today, James P. Allison, the chair of immunology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, was awarded a 2018 Nobel Prize. Allison is sharing the honor with another cancer researcher. Secretary of the Nobel Committee for Physiology or Medicine Thomas Perlman made the announcement earlier today. The Nobel Assembly has today decided to award the uh, 2018 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly 
to James P. Allison and Tasco Honjo. Both Allison and Honjo won the prize for their separate work on cancer immunotherapy. This is essentially training the body's immune system to attack cancer cells the same way it attacks bacteria and viruses. MD Anderson released a video today congratulating Dr. Allison. It features an interview with the scientist who apparently also plays harmonica. I came to MD Anderson for a couple of reasons. The, the most important one, I think, was that I think there's a lot more openness here, too, and willingness of people to work with each other. I'm not, a, I'm not an MD. I'm a scientist. So, you know, we have to work with the doctors to get designed what we're doing in the clinical trials. When you get it together and everybody's playing together, you know, it's really special. Allison received his bachelor's and doctorate degrees at the University of Texas at Austin. He spent decades studying the body's immune cells, creating an anti-cancer drug that he's currently testing with success in clinical trials. Fresh off Friday's debate with his own Democratic challenger, Lupe Valdez, Governor Greg Abbott is weighing in on the U.S. Senate race in Texas. Abbott appeared on the program Fox and Friends this morning. The governor came out swinging against Congressman Beto O'Rourke, the El Paso Democrat trying to unseat Republican Senator Ted Cruz. Listen, he's been a, a cult-like, very popular figure the way that he's run the campaign, but uh, you don't vote on cult. You don't vote on personality when you get to the United States Senate. You vote on the issues. The last day to register to vote in the November general election is October 9th. Early voting begins on October 22nd. The corny dogs are sizzling and Big Tex is looming over crowds offering a friendly howdy, folks. That's right, the State Fair of Texas in Dallas opened at the end of last week. Melissa Tate was at Fair Park when the gates opened Friday morning. She told KERA News she tries to go to the State Fair every day. I love the State Fair of Texas because it's about tradition. And even living in a big city like Dallas, it really still feels like a small county fair. The State Fair runs through Sunday, October 21st. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the law firm of Baron Adler Clough and Odo, handling eminent domain and condemnation cases throughout Texas, protecting private property rights for over 30 years. BaronAdler.com. My name is Dr. Kate Bieberdorf, and I am an associate professor of instruction. I am a firm believer that humans have affected the climate change. For me, I've just tried to use my platform to do good for the scientific community. So if I hear an inaccurate statement about climate change, I have to correct it. Like I feel like it's my moral obligation as a scientist. I have to do due diligence and make sure that everybody around me understands exactly what's going on. And I personally use questions because if somebody has an opinion about something, I tend to say, okay, well, tell me what piece of data actually led you to this conclusion? And most of them stare at you with these big doe eyes and they're like, well, I've actually never looked at the data. And I go, oh, I have. Can I can I tell you what I see? And it starts this conversation. And usually by the end, they're like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe there is an influence there. I would encourage anybody, if they're interested in, in climate change or the data behind it, to, to, to Google ice core samples. I mean, you could pull up the Wikipedia page and read something in 30 seconds and maybe have a better understanding of how we actually do these measurements and where we're getting this data from. Um, because what really happens is as our planet warms up, we're going to just see more extreme weather. And so for me, I'm just trying to kind of have that conversation. And it's really starting to um, be 
heard well. I think I think I'm I'm getting to people, and I just hope we can continue to have this conversation. But I cannot do it alone. This is just such a important time for science and if you have any scientific background or even if you don't just start asking questions have a conversation do a little research together and then start you know build a stem army just work together and get this message out there i just we can do it guys we can do it <laughs>35 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. After four days of intensive mingling among politicos, policymakers, and people just like you, another Texas Tribune Festival is in the books. We were down at TribFest broadcasting live again, and eight years into this annual event, it's remarkable how many movers and shakers the folks at the Trib are able to pack in this year. Featured discussions with former Housing and Urban Development Secretary and potential future presidential candidate Julian Castro. There was Senator Amy Klobuchar, Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's in that red-hot Senate race against Ted Cruz, and House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, among many others. But, of course, TribFest isn't just about the big names. The bulk of the attendees are civic-minded folks, perhaps not unlike yourself, who feel compelled to keep up with and analyze the news of the day. What you think matters Two, of course, which is why the Texas Standards' Michael Marks spent part of his trip fest playing a little political word association with festival goers. What do you think of when you hear the term Texas legislature? Every other year. One party. Republican. Unfortunate. Old people in offices, I, I guess. GOP. Not a lot of things passed. I think of the anti-trans legislation that they were trying to pass last session that I was really worried about. Uh, okay, what about this one? What about when you hear the term uh, immigration? The issue. Uh, we need to, both parties need to come together to fix that. Essential for the future of our country. Um, tragic. I think of the Latinx community and particularly the family separation topic over the last summer. Divisive. What about Blue Wave? A bunch of Democrats fixing to turn red into blue. <laughs> uh, I can only hope. Hopefully. The ocean. I think of the midterms, upcoming midterms, and the thoughts and of what the Democrats might do or how the House might flip or even potentially the Senate might flip blue and potential implications for the next two years, whether we have a lame duck president or something else entirely. Not sure. Last one, last one. What about when you hear the term 2020? Another round of change. Democrat. Women. Um, I'll hope for the blue wave. Optimism. Elizabeth Warren, hopefully. But <laughs> uh, nervousness and hope and census, actually. The future. Uh, blue wave's gonna hit. Uh, yeah, I think it's gonna be changed. Those are the voices of Amy Helft, Frank Shoemaker, Helene and Dan Boozer, Adrian Sanchez, Mason Reese, 
Nathan Salapis and Dan Ramirez. Thanks to all of them for giving us a little bit of their time at the 2018 Texas Tribune Festival. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at TexasOncology.com. Hope your Monday's going well. This is the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. It used to be known as Cement City. Historically, an area as visually lovely as the name many used to know it by. A place in West Dallas dotted for decades by, well, as you might imagine, cement plants. But now a filmmaker is documenting a turnaround in this place, which has also been called home by many, including the director's own grandmother. Kate Yare's Stella Chavez explains. Growing up, Victoria Farrell Ortiz didn't hear her grandmother talk about life in Cement City. She's in her 80s now, and Farrell Ortiz wanted to document her story before it's too late. So she interviewed her and made a film. It's called Huela, short for Abuelita, or grandmother in Spanish. Farrell Ortiz says it's a way to honor her grandmother and others with ties to Cement City, or Cemento Grande. I really hope that people especially residents from West Dallas, feel empowered by their history and empowered to use that history in the present and future to activate their voices and express the needs and wants that they have for their larger community. The Trinity Portland Cement Company built the community for its workers and their families. Pharrell Ortiz's grandmother, Lupe Barrera Chapa, has lived in the area 70 years. Her father and brother worked at the cement plant, which is how she met her husband. The town was incorporated in the early 1900s. Many who lived there were Mexican immigrants who fled the Mexican Revolution. In Cement City, roads weren't paved and wood-framed homes had outdoor plumbing. It had its own post office, stores, and schools. Farrell Ortiz interviewed a resident who remembers the neighborhood as gray and drab. Sediment would settle from the cement smelters at night, and she would go outside and see that. You know, there aren't very many plants growing. Pharrell Ortiz says working on the film didn't just help her understand her family's history. She learned the role Cement City played in the city of Dallas. So cement from the plant was actually used to build the Houston Street Viaduct that at the time it was built was the largest standing concrete bridge. Pharrell Ortiz is an accountant by day, but spent the past year and a half working on the documentary and raising money to make it happen. She recruited friends to write and sing a song for the film. They said you have to work. It isn't an option. Now I have to leave, they sing. The cement plants are now gone, and many longtime residents have had to move. But as the song points out, those residents are leaving their hearts and history behind. Pharrell Ortiz wants to show her film in schools, especially those in West Dallas, to keep the history of Cemento Grande alive. In Dallas, I'm Stella Chavez.
Every year, first-generation students across the country step onto college and university campuses different from their hometown in almost every way. Even for those financially and academically prepared, social and emotional challenges can influence their ability to stay and graduate. Texas Public Radio and education writer Becca McNeil are following the experiences of three San Antonio students as they begin a four-part look at life far from home. Angelica Espinosa had never heard of Skidmore College before her junior year of high school. She was surprised when the small college in Saratoga Springs, New York, turned out to be her dream school. I just fell in love with it. The community was just so close and so diverse. And the dance department was amazing. Their med school acceptance rate is super high. And it just seemed like the place I wanted to be. Espinosa easily gained admission, and the substantial financial aid package helped pay for it. She'll be the first in her family to leave the west side of San Antonio. College advisors like Ruben Rodriguez with KIPP Through College say first-generation students are more likely to graduate if the size, price tag, location, and academic offerings are a good fit for their own ambitions. To find that fit, students might have to look beyond their own backyard. Each student interviewed for this story had to consider family responsibilities, fear of leaving home, and other challenges that stood between them and their best-fit college. Within those challenges, however, they also found some of their greatest strengths. Julio Martinez found his best fit at the College of New Rochelle in New York, which offered him a generous financial aid package and a spot on the soccer team. He draws inspiration from his family's story. My parents moved from Mexico to the United States in 1999, the same year I was born. And just really that, you know, tells me like they moved from a place they've never left to the United States, knowing that they didn't know that they were going to be successful. Martinez wants to study business, in part so he can help his parents expand their furniture business. He also knows that going to college may inspire his younger brother to do the same. Research supports his belief that one way students can begin to feel they belong in college is if they have a sibling who has already graduated from college. That sense of belonging is a major difference between ordinary freshman homesickness and the unique loneliness experienced by first-generation students from low-income or minority families. According to the Pew Research Center, more Latino and first-generation students are enrolling at competitive universities across the country. But it takes more than numbers to help these students feel as though they belong in places like Princeton University, where Sierra Gonzalez is a freshman. Princeton was the best fit for her because, unlike Martinez and Espinosa, she wasn't exactly sure what she wanted to do when she graduated as valedictorian from Fox Tech in San Antonio ISD. When I was looking into Princeton, I wasn't really thinking about what they were going to do for me in terms of, like, a major, because I know myself, and I know I keep changing my mind about my major anyway, so I just thought that as long as I get a good education, then I can do anything from there, and I'll figure it out, like, on the way. Gonzalez spent her summer at Princeton's Freshman Scholars Institute where the staff and faculty encouraged her to help shape university culture and expose its cultural blind spots. For instance, when she hears a stereotype or caricature of Latino culture, she can speak directly to it. In her new surroundings, Gonzalez embraced the fact that her Latina identity is based not so much on things like food and music, but on her unique perspective. 
It's a perspective that colleges and universities would do well to understand. I'm Becca McNeil for the Texas Standard. Reporting on Far From Home is supported by an Education Writers Association fellowship. Buckle up for a battle over whether the state of Texas broke a law by capping spending for students with disabilities. It was a story the Houston Chronicle broke a couple of years back, leading to an end to the spending caps. Now attorneys for the state are expected to appear in a federal appeals court on Wednesday to explain why the state during the 2012 school year provided $33.3 million less to educate kids with disabilities than the previous year. On the other side of the case, the U.S. Department of Education, which the Texas Tribune reports, found in a separate investigation, Texas failing to provide many students with disabilities with an adequate education. Hey, did you miss the gubernatorial debate? The Standard's own Joy Diaz watched it with a focus group Friday night. We'll hear what happened as the Standard continues. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Mike Slattery, who empowers students to save the world's remaining rhinos. More at leadon.tcu.edu. TCU, lead on. You got it tuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Did you catch the gubernatorial debate Friday night? <laughs> well, no one would look at you funny if you didn't. After all, it came after the hearings for U.S. Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh, where at least three women have accused him of sexual misconduct. And it came just as Texans were settling into the weekend, too. The one and only gubernatorial debate between incumbent Republican Governor Greg Abbott and his Democratic contender, former Dallas County Sheriff Lupe Valdez. The Standard's Joy Diaz watched the debate with a focus group. Hello there, Joy. Hey, David. Uh, tell us, how did the candidates do? So the focus group that I was with was a very diverse group, deliberately diverse, but it was decidedly of undecided voters. And they said that Governor Abbott won the debate. However, there were a couple of moments where his uh, contender, Lupe Valdez, did really well. One of those moments was when they were talking about red flag laws. I think the governor has confusion between gun ownership and gun violence. And what Lupe Valdez focused on was that the governor was insisting this was a Second Amendment issue. And she was saying, we need to focus on gun violence, especially in schools. Mm -hmm. The other moment where, you know, she shined, really, this was her only opportunity to address Texans on a TV format, right, right. Um, was the moment where she was talking about Harvey recovery mm -hmm. and the usage of the rainy day fund. We have a rainy day fund. He calls a special session for bathrooms, but does not call a special session when people are dying. The Rainy Day Fund is the biggest savings account in the United States. Governor, it rained. So that was the memorable line there. You know, Governor, it rained. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Talking about the close to $10 billion right. that Texas does have in savings. And just to be clear, that red flag law that you were referring to earlier, this is a proposal uh, which uh, basically would uh, permit uh, the state to step in if, in fact, there have been reports that someone might actually be a danger. State would step in and presumably take away the firearms. Absolutely, as some states do. Right. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so um, I'm a little curious 
curious here. You mentioned that this was a fairly diverse crowd of people, and yet they thought that the governor won this debate. Uh, it it was very you? interesting. Yes, it was d evenly divided between... Um, First of all, it was divided by race. Half of uh, the people were white and the other half were an extremely diverse group. It was evenly divided between men and women. It was some Democrats, some Republicans and some independents. Mm -hmm. However, uh, a lot of them did not know who Lupe Valdez was. And that was part that name is recognition. part name recognition is yep. a big issue. And what did Governor Abbott have to say? Where did he uh, uh, punch back? Well, Governor Abbott, as we know, is a very experienced politician. Uh, but one of his uh, shining moments in this debate was when he addressed uh, Lupe Valdez about the DREAM Act. The uh, legislators who passed uh, that DREAM Act, they had a noble cause behind what they were seeking to do. But there was a flaw in the structure in the law that passed. The law that passed said that these students who received in-state tuition had to demonstrate that they were on a pathway toward achieving legal status. However, there is no apparatus in the law uh, to make sure that that, in fact, is being done. Hence, uh, the law is structured, is flawed, and it has to be fixed. So... Lupe Valdez came back saying that's not the fault of the dreamers. You know, we do not do federal immigration law in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. So the fact that there is no path, no path to citizenship for for them, it's is like penalizing them for this. Very interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, usually people focus in on the zingers. Any any knockout punch here? Um, everybody said the Democratic contender Lupe Valdez did really well. She did not hold any punches. However, she did not deliver a knockout punch. The standard Joy Diaz talking about Friday's one and only debate between Texas Governor Greg Abbott and his Democratic challenger, former Dallas County Sheriff Lupe Valdez. Election Day is November 6th, folks. Thanks so much, Joy. We sure do appreciate it. Thank you, David. And you are listening to The Texas Standard. He's back in the studio, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. Hello there, Wells. Hi, David. As we heard, yeah, that debate between Governor Greg Abbott and Democratic challenger Lupe Valdez happening, the first and last debate happening this past Friday. None too many disinterested inclinations that it seems to have hmm. moved the needle either yeah. which way. The headline on the Dallas Morning News website seems to say it all. After debate, race between Greg Abbott and Lupe Valdez still a snoozer. I do wonder how widely it was seen. Though. I was just I, thinking that same yeah. thing. You know, uh, Valdez, I think, has not quite cracked the million dollar mark in the latest uh, yeah. reporting, uh, uh, you know, documents that have, that have come out. And yet, uh, uh, Greg Abbott has an enormous, enormous campaign sitting on chest. a lot of cash there. You know, that morning news article from Gromer Jeffers seems to sort of sum up the elite consensus that Valdez hasn't had an all right night, but uh, all right ain't enough to cut it mm -hmm. when you're facing that. Those sorts of odds. Yeah. Still lots of people sounding off uh, on Twitter. Haley Jane says that Greg Abbott totally won that debate, that Lupe Valdez was busy taking notes the entire time. Meanwhile, Gail tweeted that she watched the debate and felt that Valdez came off as genuine and well-informed, and Abbott sounded like a bureaucrat. And I think that may have been sort of part of... Uh, 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 the strategy there, you know, it was a very, you didn't see any real pointed attack from Greg Abbott on, on, on Valdez because, you know, he's just kind of trying to float above the fray, I think you could say. It was a Friday night. It happened during the Texas Tribune Festival yeah. when a lot of folks were in downtown Austin. And, uh, you know, 
Um, and, you know, the Friday Night Lights and all exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, you know, speaking about the Texas Tribune Festival, I, yeah. I feel like there may have been more people at that Beto O'Rourke rally after his appearance. This is Tribune the one that Willie Festival. Nelson uh, did. Yes. Uh, and as you mentioned, yeah, quite an impressive turnout for that rally featuring Willie Nelson and others. 000. Yeah, reports in that range. And uh, this tweet from Nathalie Fenn, she says that last night's rally in Austin was powerful. The fact that it was the largest since Obama's Portland rally in 2008 and even larger than Hillary Clinton's or Donald Trump's presidential rallies gives me hope. And now I, I had not fact heard checked that. that, and That's it appears to be true. Uh-huh. It's a staggering number. It appears to be borne out by the Wall Street Journal. They called it the largest gathering by a politician since that Obama rally in 2008, eclipsing, yes, even the presidential campaign rallies from Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And that Clinton one even featured like Bon Jovi. And <laughs> if you're right. talking about Willie Nelson and the draw there, right, that one right. also featured some celebrity performers. And it's interesting scanning Twitter, you do see more of those sort of Obama comparisons maybe it's par- partially because Obama's like had that rally yeah. <laughs> in downtown Austin where there are a bunch of Democrats obviously uh, but that sort of uh, just, just the sheer amount of people there and the sort of energy in that crowd yeah, it's it's interesting that this is uh, getting the attention of the Texas governor as yeah. well who I think referred to uh, yes. Beto O'Rourke as what a cult-like cult-like figure? Like, yes something leader or something yeah, words okay. to those effect we heard that in the roundup uh-huh. you know in other uh, O'Rourke social media news folks were noting what he did with his time uh, yesterday, Sunday. He was originally set to debate Ted Cruz Sunday, but that was called off amid the Kavanaugh confirmation controversy. So Cruz apparently tried to reschedule, but O'Rourke said he was busy, and his plans included live streaming the recording of a new campaign commercial on in his own kitchen. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used Facebook Live to stream uh, I think four different takes for a 30-second spot. So some on the GOP were using that timing to attack him, saying that, hey, why didn't you reschedule it? Other folks saying, hey, you know, I think he was, if, he, if he was in his kitchen, he was probably back in El Paso, probably taking a breather. Yeah. Well, yeah, folks, you hear that music, and that means the time is up for the big broadcast. But the news continues online at TexasStandard.org. And Wells Dunbar is always looking for your comments. He's going to be back here tomorrow. I'll be back here tomorrow. Hope you will be back here tomorrow as well. Till then, have a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.